0: This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns.
0: the world is dangerous. There are dangers everywhere, economically, in health services, and indeed, of course, in the war in Europe between Russia and Ukraine. At the centre of much of what we see as wrong and troublesome and worrying people is across the water in the UK. And we've seen four prime ministers Pretty quickly, all Tories. There are rumours that Boris Johnson may be planning a comeback. And yesterday, Rishi Sunak, the current Prime Minister, announced a five-point plan, which he said he would, and I quote, work night and day to implement, to change the UK and improve opportunities for Brits. And we're joined now by Chris Johns, Chris former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland now, a respected commentator and indeed a successful podcaster. His podcast, The Other Hand, is doing really well and you can get it two or three times a week. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Rishi Sunak is beginning to look like a lightweight, but this was his first major speech as Prime Minister. He's been Prime Minister for a couple of months now. And the five-point plan... Really leaves quite a lot to be desired. What did you make of it? Because much of it is about economic matters and Britain's challenges.
2: Yes. The five-point plan actually has shades of Tony Blair, because he produced something similar before he took office. And you know, in a way it's Blair light in in some respects. It's there's a race on now between uh, Sunak and Starmer to, to try and occupy the center ground. And they both seem to be trying to take a leaf out of Tony Blair's book, which is full, replete with, with ironies in, in both men's cases. But the five point plan, it, it starts with a pledge to halve inflation. Um, there's no timescale on this, I think. Or maybe this is the one thing that does have an end of year uh, date on it. The rest of the pledges. Uh, like all good promises, are undated. Uh, inflation is one of those things that is absolutely and utterly outside Rishi Sunak's control. Uh, yes. There is nothing nothing he can do about inflation. If there is anything domestically to be done about inflation, that's the Bank of England's job. That's the law in the UK, actually. But um, probably Vladimir Putin has more control over British inflation than does Rishi Sunak via the energy price thing that is, that is going on. Uh, that said... It probably will fall. Inflation will fall this year because uh, energy prices have stopped going up. In some cases, they're actually going down now. And the British economy is in recession, and recession is usually pretty good for getting inflation down. So I, I think it will be an easy target for him to hit. But it, it's utterly outside of his control. It's more a forecast than anything else.
0: Now so, the, the one that sorry, on. Chris. No, I was you go on. I was going to ask you actually about the fourth promise or pledge that the National Health Service waiting lists will fall and people will get the care they need more quickly. Watching British television and seeing what's happening in Britain, even from here, where we have a real problem in our health service in terms of resources and staffing and care and overcrowding, watching what's happening in Britain, particularly with ambulances and the difficulty of getting into a hospital in the first place, no matter how sick or old you are. He says he's going to fix that problem. It seems particularly ugly, the situation with the health service in Britain at this moment.
2: It is, and make no mistake, the health service is still there. It hasn't fallen over, but it is most definitely fraying badly at the edges. And and some aspects of British healthcare uh, are really uh, not fit for purpose anymore. And it, it, it is true that people are dying in the back of ambulances that should not be. There are more deaths than there need to be because of the state of the NHS. It has inevitably sparked a huge debate that has more emotion than fact kicked around. Emotionally, people you know, are very attached in Britain to the NHS, and some people are very worried that this Is almost a conspiracy by some aspects of the people in charge to uh, get the NHS to the point where we all end up taking out private insurance. And um, I I don't subscribe to that, but that is certainly one of the things that's kicked around.
0: Well, the The Tories, the Tories, and particularly this brand of Tories in the cabinet now—they are nationalists. They're right-wing. They are some of them visibly nasty, and it's hard to believe that they believe in the National Health Service as a concept.
2: Yeah, the, there are plenty of people in the Conservative Party who would be no friends of the NHS, but equally I don't think they're stupid enough to try and privatise it, even privatise it by stealth. But the, the, we, we need to deal in facts rather than emotion. And one of the things that has happened in the UK is that for years now, ever since George Osborne's austerity Uh, the phrase, we have protected the NHS, has been used by the Tories since they first came to power in in 2010. And um, a lot of people have followed that line, hook, line, and sinker, because they look at spending on the health service in real terms, and it's flatlined. And that looks like they've protected it because they've kept real spending constant. But of course, that means it doesn't account for um, a growing population. So spending per capita has fallen, and it doesn't uh, account for the aging population and that as we get older we require more health care and it doesn't take into account the advances in medical technology which means that they should be spending more money on health care so it, it, it's a stealth way of denuding the national health service of resources for really the last 12 or 13 years and that is a direct consequence of cameron osborne austerity and, and that's something that i think people need to understand that the nhs has not been protected by the Tories in terms of the resources that they have been given. That said, there is also a big debate being sparked by the by the fact that the NHS itself clearly needs a better organisational structure. And everybody's eyes roll at this point, and they say, oh God, not another reorganisation, not another restructuring of the, the NHS. We've had so many over the years that have been a complete disaster. But it remains true that all of those reorganisations and restructures in the past haven't worked, And the 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 way in which the organ the the NHS is organised is not fit for purpose. It's very easy to say that the there should be less administrators. That's another emotional knee jerk response. That there aren't enough doctors and nurses, but there are too many administrators. The facts on the ground, Damon, are that actually the NHS needs more administrators, and importantly, more and better administrators, because the administrators they got, quite frankly, are not fit for purpose. So there's a whole Break of things that need to be done to get these waiting lists down. There are 7.2 million people on the waiting list now. Yes. So he's going to have to find some money from somewhere to get these waiting lists down quickly. And at the moment, um, nobody knows where he's going to get the money from.
0: Now, the fifth pledge is that they will pass new laws to stop small boats, making sure that if you come to this country illegally, you are... Detained and swiftly removed, and at present you will be removed to Rwanda, although nobody has boarded a flight to Rwanda yet. It's hard to forget that the Home Secretary, Suela Braverman, said that it was her dream to see a plane taking off from Heathrow bound for Rwanda with people who had entered the country illegally, even if they had a case, incidentally to claim asylum, which seems particularly cruel, particularly Tory, and particularly this Tory government.
2: They could solve this problem overnight by simply saying we will accept these people into Britain and where they will be sorted, their their asylum applications will be processed properly uh, somewhere in the vicinity of the airports rather than beaches in which they land. And if their asylum application is rejected, they will be sent home. That's what every other country does. And so uh, they won't do that, of course. They, they, they want to have this cruel, ridiculous, vastly expensive. This has cost upwards of $100 million already without a single person being put on a plane. And th- there have been many, many promises in the past to reduce immigration in general and small boat uh, refugees in particular. And neither promise, ever since David Cameron made it, actually, has ever been honoured. So it'll be very interesting to see what he does, whether or not it works, whether he gets the legislation through the House, and indeed whether it um, is in in keeping with international treaty obligations that Britain has signed. So I have my doubts, frankly, about whether he's going to achieve it, because there really is only one way to stop the boats coming in, and and that's to allow these people to come in legally and then process their applications near an airport.
1: From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: Now, it does seem I watched the speech yesterday. I've watched him, as many people have, watched the debates with Liz Truss when, frankly, she wiped the floor with him because he was nervous. He was jumping in, interrupting. This guy doesn't look like a prime minister. He doesn't sound like a prime minister. And there's something weak about him. I th-
2: I think he's a lightweight and yeah. um, I tend to agree with that description that you just gave there of being weak. And if you think about it he's he's from central casting isn't he? There's this production line of prime ministers that goes goes back at least to David Cameron if not before where you have these private ed- privately educated people and um, he's an old Wickhamist, we say in the UK because he went yeah. to, um, he didn't go to Eton but he went to its equivalent and then they go off and do um, in all of the prime ministers, in male prime ministers' cases, back to Cameron, um, PPE at Oxford. Uh, trees are made geography, but, um, you know, the same kind of background. And I think we're, the, 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 the well of talent that they are fishing in for prime ministers is actually uh, very shallow. It may have even run dry. And, and one of the things that a, a university tutor will tell you, not least from Oxford, where all of these people went, the hardest thing to do, is to distinguish between a hyper-educated posh kid who really has been educated to pass the British equivalent of the Leaving Cert, its A-levels, at a high level and really educated beyond their natural abilities but nevertheless to pass exams, or the kid who is also got fantastic A-levels but can then, through fantastic natural talent, kick on and benefit from elite university education. It's very hard when they've both got the same qualifications to tell the difference. And I just have a feeling that we've had a succession of prime ministers, including this one, that are just hyper-educated, pos- posh kids, and educated beyond their natural abilities, I say, very judgmentally. Because I do think that the judgments that these people make show just how lacking they are in intellectual gravitas, in, in, in really being able to run things. Now, one of the objectives that he um, promised as well was to get the British economy going again. And there I would say good luck with that because a lot of people don't realize just how deep a hole the British economy is in with respect to economic growth, how the, how deep-seated the problems are and how much work is going to have to be done to solve them. There is no magic button or lever to push or pull that says growth, get it going, particularly at a time when he's raising taxes and cutting government spending. So good luck with that.
0: Yes, and there is a, a question... I want to ask you about Brexit in a moment, Chris. Before we leave Rishi's sort of solution to Britain's problems, we should reflect on the fact that he said everybody up to the age of 18 must continue to study maths, which seems, given the state of education in Britain, even when I lived there, to be hogwash, not to put too fine a point on it. There is, I think, a consensus. I believe you share it, as many leading businessmen and economists in Britain do, that the cost of Brexit is a major problem for Britain. And a new poll came out last week showing that 65% of Britons think it was a mistake now to leave the European Union, and only something like 35 or 36% of people are happy with things as they are. That's quite a shift, isn't it?
2: There's a palpable sense that something has gone wrong in Britain. I mean, there's a theme or a meme, as it's called these days on social media, called Broken Britain. And people come at it from all sorts of different perspectives. Even Nigel Farage, without any hint of irony whatsoever, has tweeted, Britain is broken. Now, we might ask who who broke it nigel <laughs> <laughs> um and but also the extreme left as well the extreme left and yeah. uh, you get people like there's there's a well-known commentator called george monbiot of the guardian a, a, an ultra left commentator who's tweeted exactly the same thing so pe- the the left and the right are coming at this from different perspectives but arriving at the same conclusion that britain is broken one of the reasons that it is broken is because of brexit there's absolutely no doubt about that um but there are lots of other reasons it's like one of those murder mystery novels where you have a whole bunch of suspects initially and it turns out that actually every single one of them done it. it's a complicated picture it goes back to what i was talking about growth growth is the problem for britain it hasn't had any now for a decade and a half we used to talk about japan countries like japan or japan in particular having a um lost decade we've had a lost decade and a half and it's really really serious and it one of the things that has led to low growth in Britain is Brexit. Another, and this is where Sunak is right to talk about maths education, or at least education, is that the education system clearly isn't fit for purpose, not least for the economy's purpose. And he's attacking one particular aspect of the education system, when really it requires root and branch reform. Um, one of the things that I would do, for example, is, is implement uh, an Irish leaving search, baccalaureate-type system, so the kids study six to eight subjects to Yes. Uh, 18, rather than narrowly specialise at far too uh, early an age.
0: Now, earlier this week, Leo Vroudkir, who last week took over as Taoiseach in the joint government arrangement, he made a speech about the Northern Ireland Protocol and about the negotiations between Britain and the EU. And he said that, on reflection, he thought what the EU wanted was to tough to demanding, and there could be more flexibility from the EU side of the argument about how you check customs and how you process inwards and outwards goods and so on. And that seemed to get a small reaction. It got a big reaction from some nationalists here, and it wasn't a positive one. But Vradka was kind of offering an olive branch, Sunak didn't really pick it up. He would know nothing about the North, would he? Nothing at all. Given his background, he certainly wouldn't have any visceral attitude to to the Unionist cause, or indeed whether Ireland was united or or disunited. It wouldn't matter to him a bit, would it? I wonder if he's ever crossed
2: the border, which is where, where, where you know the issue here. Yeah, um, if he, if he's ever physically been there, I mean, uh, I've crossed it when they were. They, it was it looked like checkpoint Charlie, places like Ockham-Cloy and Straban. Yes. and so um, I dare I say it, have some understanding of of, of the issues, uh, and most of my fellow Brits do not. Um, there is is there there is no connection, and they don't understand. Uh, but what nevertheless, what I think, Faradka, is up to is exactly what you just said, which is offering an olive branch, because I think people like Faradka, people on the Irish negotiating side that are involved in these negotiations in Brussels, understand that whatever deal is cooked up now, and they will cook up a deal, has to be sold effectively to the right wing of the Conservative Party, the European Research Group, and the DUP, and the nationalists. Now, that's a really tough circle yes. to square,
0: isn't it? it never, um, and it has never been squared.
2: Yeah. So I think that you know, there may well be a lot of smoke and mirrors here, that one of the things that um, might be, uh, we might be seeing is, is that Europe says it's climbing down, says it's making lots of concessions, using Varadkar as the mouthpiece, when in fact it isn't. So at least when Sunak is trying to sell it to the ERG, he can say, look, the Irish prime minister has said the EU has climbed down. And they and and it might not actually amount to very much, but at least the rhetoric yes. is pointing in that direction. So it's it's a, it, as you said, as we both say, it's going to be a really tough sell for those three different constituencies.
0: Now, the British Labour Party today they announced their own plans, but repeatedly, Keir Starmer made the speech. He said, "There's no going back on Brexit." Repeatedly, when the Labour Party in Britain are asked about Brexit and the fact that they were remainers rather than leavers, they are clearly and wisely not attempting to rewrite that particular piece of history. Britain's hoist on that petard, isn't it?
2: Very much so. And and even
0: though I'm sure Starmer and I'm sure the real thinkers in Britain would recognise that it hasn't really worked for Britain in any of its you know, ambitions, they can't now. They're stuck with this thing. Because if, if Starmer said, well, I wouldn't mind going back, he'd be dead. Credibility. Oh, yes.
2: Well, the, the Tories are praying for him to start making positive EU noises in some shape or form in order for them to be able to go on the attack and go back to all the Red Wall voters and all the other Brexit voters yes. and say, look, here they go. They're reneging on the promises that we made to you at the time of the Brexit referendum. These people are not to be trusted, particularly with our Brexit. And therefore, he is being very pragmatic. It's pure politics when it is his refusal to discuss any of these issues. And from from that perspective, it's very wise politics. From an economic perspective, it's just daft because the only thing to do now is to get as close Back to the EU as you possibly can without actually anybody noticing um, from an electoral point of view. And let me, over the uh, Christmas break, there's an organization called the Center for European Reform. They're very serious economic thinkers, produce their latest estimates. They do this every quarter of what Brexit has cost the British economy. And in dry terms, they say it's 5% of GDP already. Now, in pure cash terms, they also calculated what that means for lost tax revenues, and it was close to fifty billion that the that uh, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is has got fifty million quid missing. Guess what? He raised taxes by in his last budget, no. close to fifty billion. Right. So that's you know, it's a very simple calculus. Yes. The money has gone missing, and he's having to tax us uh, on the basis of that.
0: I just want to ask you a couple of final questions, Chris and. In a way, they're linked. Looking at Britain as somebody who lived there for 17 years and has an understanding of it and affection and respect to some degree for it, are we looking at a nationalist and increasingly nationalist Britain governed by increasingly nationalist dummies? And the other linked question is, it appears that Boris Johnson is now planning a comeback. And there is some polling to suggest that the Tory party membership and many of its representatives in the House of Commons want him back as the saviour before the next election, which they feel he can win where nobody else can win. I'm not way off the beam there, am I?
2: No, you're not. Your first question uh, about the, the the nature of Britain and uh, where it's going, the way in which the social fabric, the political fabric yes. is fraying at the edges. Um, I, you very kindly mentioned uh, my own uh, writing and podcasting efforts. I wrote something over Christmas called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, borrowing a, uh, a phrase used by a, another a Harvard economist actually called Ben Freeman, who has pointed out, and it's something that economists don't do typically, at least haven't done for hundreds of years, that point out that there are always social consequences of economics and political consequences. It's not just about the pound or the euro in your pocket. And the economic growth that doesn't just lead to you, to people being able to buy fancier cars or nicer houses. It enables social and political progress. It enables growth in prosperity that is non-monetary in nature. For ex- What do I mean by that? So for Ireland, for example, has had fantastic material economic progress in recent years that has been followed by fantastic social progress in terms of gay rights, women's rights, and other very progressive pieces of legislation and changes to your social fabric. And This line of thinking would say you wouldn't have been able to do that if you hadn't had the economic growth that preceded it. And there's plenty of examples to show that that's what happens. And it it also happens in reverse. When economies stop going forward, your social and political character starts to deteriorate. And I think that's what's going on in Britain right now. And that the forces that have given rise to Johnsonism, if you like, are 15 years of economic growth going missing. So the politics becomes poisonous because the cake that you're trying to share out isn't growing anymore, so if if you have more, somebody else has to have less. And there's all this poisonous stuff going on that means that the fundamental character of your nation is being degraded by the absence of economic growth. There are social and political consequences of economics, really, really important that we neglect. And I think that's, in in large part, what's happening to Britain. We're suffering from uh, a whole bunch of wrong-headed policies that have led to 15 years of no economic growth a rapid increase in inequality, and you're right. Johnson is threatening to make a comeback. I'll tell you, there's a an old Tory MP, ex-Tory MP, called Matthew Paris.
0: Ah, yes, he writes has, for the Times.
2: Hasn't been in in, in yes. the House of Commons for a long time, but he's wrote a column this week expressing great alarm because Boris Johnson has been seen with increasing frequency in his old constituency that he once was an MP for, and there are rumours flying around that constituency, which is in the north of England, that. Um, it is a much, much safer seat than Johnson's Uxbridge seat, and that Johnson is going to shunt aside the sitting Tory MP and... Uh, sit, uh, go for it at the next general election. And Matthew Paris has said, in which case, I am going to stand for re-election as an MP um, <laughs> on the, on a anybody but Boris' platform. Uh, that, so yes, there are these rumours and stories flying around which I do think have some credibility. He would like to make a comeback, certainly, and there are certainly sections of the Tory party that would love to have him back.
0: Yes, and of course he supported Liz Truss probably on the grounds that he knew she, was, she wasn't the brightest bulb on the tree. Just while you were talking there, Chris, it was Harold Wilson who, after the British government had to devalue the pound, who said to the nation, the pound in your pocket will just be the same as it always was. <laughs> it was one of Which, the, of course, was a the lie. The greatest lie, <laughs> the cleverest lie, in a way, to say to the British people around 1964, when hopefully most of our audience weren't around, Harold Wilson put that phrase into circulation.
2: Absolutely. One of the great political lies of all time.
0: Yeah, audacity. Well, it works. I think he was re-elected. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. We wish you a happy new year from all our listeners and, of course, a happy new year to all our listeners. We're grateful to Chris Johns, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.